Welcome to Episode 5 of Fundamentals, an equity-focused series on the Federated Hermes podcast channel. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. On the fourth episode of Fundamentals, I hosted the first of two climate change focus episodes and was joined by Will Pomroy, Lead Engager for SDG Engagement and Small and Mid-Cap Equities at the firm, and Ingrid Kukulian, Head of Impact Investing, as we delved into impact investing and engaging on climate change. Let's remind ourselves of what Will had to say when I asked him whether climate change was now taking a backseat, given that the world was preoccupied with the current public health crisis. In the immediacy, I, I think it, it did take a, a backseat for a short while. But but I think in terms of what's on our mind as, as long-term investors, absolutely not. It's very much still front and centre of many of the, the conversations we're having with companies. As you rightly said, Ethan, that the COVID crisis has clearly exacerbated economic health and, and social inequalities, and that will have ramifications for, for years to come. But climate change is clearly the looming disaster that, that hangs over everything and it really does require attention and um, change both by companies, by investors, and indeed ultimately by governments in the immediacy to, to have any chance of us being able to make meaningful change that will ensure we have a, an environment that we still want to live in and are able to live in in the decades to come. So, so absolutely, it's still very much front of mind. Today, we continue that conversation on climate change with Louise Dudley, a portfolio manager on the Global Equities team, Gary Greenberg, head of emerging markets at the firm, and Kunjal Gala, co-portfolio manager with the Global Emerging Markets team. Welcome, Louise, Gary and Kunjal. Hi, delighted to be here. Uh, hi, Ethan. Thank you very much uh, for inviting us. Happy to be here. Let's start, as we always do, by delving into our guest background. Gary, I'd love to talk a little bit about your career journey noting that you ha- there has recently been an announcement that you are going to be moving back from your role as portfolio manager of the Emerging Markets Fund, and but remaining as head of the team. Gary, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in this role of investment? Yes. Um, I was in uh, graduate school in 1985, getting a combined uh, MBA international relations degree. And I didn't exactly know uh, what I could do to help humanity. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. And I decided that moving money to places that needed it was probably the most effective uh, way to, to do that. Unfortunately, in 1985, uh, international portfolio investing with a responsible uh, flavor wasn't wasn't the thing at all. And so uh, nobody was willing to pay me to try to do that. So I just became a regular portfolio manager, got very interested in emerging markets and had a career which took me to Hong Kong uh, New York, and then eventually London. Uh, very happy to join Hermes in 2010, uh, especially because Hermes had a, a sense of duty to uh, to beneficiaries and to humanity. And uh, so I've been uh, very happy to participate in the uh, development of a business which emphasizes people and uh, and our responsibility towards them. So yes, I will be stepping down uh, from the lead portfolio manager on September 1st, uh, leaving the uh, leaving that role to Kuncho Gala, who's been working with me for eight years. We've known each other for probably over 20 now. And I will be, but I'll be remaining the head of emerging markets until uh, summer of 2022. So that's my background. Thank you very much, Gary. And Kunjal, you have been a guest on Fundamentals before. But maybe just for our new listeners, if you could just give a, a quick reminder, I know you've had a career both in the um, public and the private sector. 
before um, coming into portfolio management. If you could just remind us of your journey. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I joined Hermes uh, back in February 2012, uh, initially focusing as an analyst on emerging Asia, uh, and then subsequently became the co-portfolio manager in 2016. Uh, prior to joining Hermes, I spent several years uh, working for Her Majesty's Treasury in the investments team. Uh, the role there was primarily focusing on uh, investing in the advanced manufacturing sector in the UK uh, with the main purpose uh, behind investing in the sector was to uh, create job opportunities and also economic development of, uh, of the country. Uh, before that, I spent several years working for Morgan Stanley in their investment banking division, primarily focusing on advising global consumer companies on mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance uh, strategies. Uh, and then before that, I trained as an accountant uh, back in India with uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Thanks, Kunjal. And Louise, you've also been a guest on Fundamentals previously. I know you have a background in engineering. Can you just remind us as to your journey into investment and how you came to be at the firm? Sure. Um, so yes, yeah, so I originally studied uh, engineering uh, in the UK and um, got a flavor for working with businesses um, as part of a kind of uh, engineering consultancy projects that I was involved in um, before deciding upon graduation to move more towards the financial realm. And uh, I originally joined Federated Homies in 2009 um, in the EOS team as part of the stewardship capability before moving into global equities in um, later in 2009 and progressed from a quantitative analyst to portfolio manager in 2012. Thanks, Louise. So we're really lucky to have three diverse investment professionals here representing two strategies at the firm, two strategies that operate somewhat differently, both representing critical mass, one with a more of a model-driven approach and one with what I would call maybe a strictly fundamental approach in the case of our emerging market strategy. I think what is uniting both of them for me, though, is the uh, ab initio integration of ESG factors in their analysis, as well as the commitment of the professionals to integrating not only analysis of, of ESG, but also research and learning of ESG. Both um, teams here have recently published some publications on our website in the case of Louise, it was called Balancing the Carbon Equation, How We Are Investing for a Better Climate. And the case of Gary and the Emerging Market Strategy, it was called Gemologist, Can We Adapt to the New Climate Normal? Both of these publications are available on our website. But I'd really like to dig into each of them now, because I think each of them gives a very unique perspective as to how we should now be thinking about integrating climate change rea reality and dynamics into our investment approaches. Louise, let's start with you. Your latest piece is a very broad and detailed look at how we integrate ESG analysis into our investing. What was the aim of that piece and how do you think it captures innovation in our investing style over the last few years? So the aim of the piece really was to acknowledge um, climate change risk as being a key risk for us as mainstream investors. The idea is still 
permeated within the market that if you consider some of these wider um, environmental and social issues that that's not aligned to generating value for clients and really part of the piece was to say that as a mainstream investor it's important to be considering these things because we are seeing both some of the impacts from a physical perspective in terms of how they impact companies but also in terms of transition as well that um, some of these broader more secular growth trends um, are alive and well so just letting clients know how we're thinking about that uh, and our overall approach um, to how we think about climate within the portfolio context. And I found it very interesting that you spoke about not only at the um, analysis you do at the corporate level, but the analysis you do at the portfolio and the stock level. How does that differ? So part of as part of ESG integration, it's important to have those three levels that you've mentioned, the corporate, the portfolio and the stock level because it's done in slightly different ways in terms of um, consideration of, of the various kind of risks or opportunities that are available. At a stock level, we have a quantitative environmental score, which we've built using a range of different data providers, including some of the in-house information we have from our internal stewardship team. And using that quantitative score, we can look to tilt the portfolio towards company which are better at managing some of the environmental risks that they're facing. On top of that, at a portfolio level, we also want to consider some of the broader, more macro themes. Um, and in particular, we can use carbon footprinting to look at a portfolio's exposure versus the benchmark. But on top of that, we can also think about how the portfolio is positioned um, broader than just the carbon footprint, also on some of the other metrics that we use, and particularly using a governance framework um, to look at how the portfolio is um, positioned for some of these broader trends. At a corporate level, um, so that includes what we are doing as a firm um, and ensuring that we're being transparent and reporting on that but also some of the public policy and advocacy work that we do to really drive um, greater consideration of some of the climate change risks that are out there and also to ensure that industries themselves are being transparent and, and are decarbonizing as quickly um, as is required in order to be aligned with um, either net zero or, or with the Paris Agreement. So looking at those three levels is quite important and certainly it requires um, focus on some of the data that we have but also having that qualitative lens and certainly some of the research we have from the stewardship team as well ensures that we're able to capture both um, kind of how the portfolio looks today but also how the portfolio is exposed to some of those forward-looking trends. Great. And you have a wonderful graphic in your piece, which talks about the significant shift in the investment universe that climate change has stoked. You speak about investors signing on to a global investor statement to governments on climate change, as well as some particular action by a group of Danish pension funds um, around a commitment to green investments. And we also talk about how companies themselves are responding by taking science-based climate action and adopting science-based targets. Do you think that we really have reached a tipping point now 
where every institutional investor needs to have a policy and there is already critical mass in some of these actions? I think we have. And I think the TCFD framework has really enabled investors to do that. So the fact that PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, have included uh, mandatory TCFD reporting from this year means that any investor, whether that's um, you know, irrespective of size, if they want to sign up to being a PRI member, um, then they are invited um, to produce a TCFD report. And I think part of what's really important within the TCFD is that it does cover the various um, important metrics in terms of governance, um, strategy, so the more kind of forward-looking, how it's aligned to the business plan, metrics and targets, so having specific um, measurable um, actions uh, and that disclosure, and also having the kind of the risk awareness through scenario analysis as well. And um, and although these are areas that are still evolving and, and um, there isn't a firm framework in terms of how this is done, because of the scale of the asset supporting PRI, it now means that that we are certainly at a tipping point and, and some of those tools are becoming more widely available, um, which is great. One of the other things that's really important that TCFD has brought to the fore, or certainly when we talk about Paris alignment, is it's not just about decarbonizing, but it's also about the green opportunities that you've mentioned. And so it's important for us as investors to be reporting on both those two metrics. Um, and that's something that we do within the capabilities that we manage. Great. Thanks very much, Louise. Just want to move to Gary's piece now. When and we speak about um, can we adapt to the new climate normal? Clearly, Gary, you were focusing more than just mitigation measures that companies could take here, but broader adaptation measures that really companies had no choice but to take. Can you speak to us about what your goals were in writing this piece and what you were hoping that your readership would take from it? We think we've reached the point of no return on global warming, uh, even though um, it's very important for us to continue, it's critically important for us to continue efforts to reduce emissions and, pr- and probably uh, reverse emissions, uh, even if we do reverse uh, emissions in, in the near term, which is highly unlikely, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere means that uh, the, the planet is going to continue to warm. And uh, this, is, this is very serious. Um, we don't realize, many of us just don't realize how sensitive even our bodies are to, um, to uh, warmer climates. But looking at the macro, at two degrees, fast-melting ice sheets are going to collapse. Water scarcity is going to continue uh, to threaten people, probably 400 million more people than today. Major cities in the equatorial band are going to become increasingly unlivable. Heat waves will kill thousands. At three degrees, southern Europe, Central America, Caribbean, and North Africa are going to be subject to permanent drought. Wildfires uh, will burn twice the average annual land area burned in the Mediterranean last year, and six times the amount in North America. If we get to four degrees, river flooding in Bangladesh will grow uh, about 20 times in India. 30 times and 60 times in the UK. 
this could cost as high as $600 trillion. So these are issues which mean that we need to adapt, not just work on mitigation. We've sent the, uh, we've sent the piece to our clients uh, who need to be aware of this, we think. But in addition to that, we sent it to our companies who are the ones who really need to be aware of it. We did a study uh, of some of our companies and found that there wasn't very much awareness of the, of the implications of a warmer world amongst our companies. And, uh, and we got a very good response when we sent the piece saying, gee, we weren't aware of this. Uh, we need to start thinking about this. Can you help us think about it? So um, just one more point to make here is that, um, that there are various vulnerabilities when you look at a company, uh, any company, uh, in, a, in a much warmer world. Its employees are going to have a harder time working, especially if they work outside. An increase of only 0.2 degrees Celsius can compromise multitasking ability. 0.9 increase can, uh, uh, can make uh, neuromuscular coordination start to fail. 1.3 degrees increase, mental performance starts to sag. At three degrees, you get heat stroke risk. And at five degrees, death. So after four or five hours at 35 degrees of wet bulb temperature, uh, you're, you're actually in a very compromised position physically. And just, uh, you know, as an illustration, the Arctic is already five degrees warmer than it was in pre-industrial times. So we've got a very serious uh, thing, not only uh, sweating at work, or getting to work as a problem in emerging markets. But food systems are at risk. Physical assets are at risk from flooding and storm surges. Infrastructure assets are at risk from roads buckling, flight cancellations due to heat, cell phone towers misfunctioning, power generation being less productive. And then obviously water supplies, glaciers and rivers drying up, etc. So adaptation is very important for investors, and we think it's time to start thinking about it and equally important for companies who need to start preparing. And Gary, before we move to looking more specifically at this in emerging economies with Kundal, I'd like to ask you the same question I asked Will and, and that we had a clip from earlier. Is this now the time to be discussing this? Most of these companies are probably preoccupied with their COVID-19 response. They're probably in firefighting mode. They're dealing with unprecedented shifts in supply and demand. Is this the time to be bringing up another existential crisis? Or do you think this must be the time, if not now, when? It's, um, it's inconvenient. Yeah, it's quite inconvenient. And uh, there, there, there may be a time in the future where everything is great and uh, companies will be, all their decks will be cleared and they'll be all set to think about this issue. Unfortunately, it's pretty much unlikely that that time is ever going to come. There are always going to be issues. There are always going to be problems. Uh, if a company wants to put off working on this issue for six months, I think that's probably okay. But in emerging markets in particular, and, you know, not to mention California, Australia, et cetera, this is already an issue and it's just going to increase. So the sooner companies find a way to get some resource and start looking at this, the better off they'll be five, 10 years from now. And Kunjal, I suppose that point could be asked to you as well. 
when we look at emerging economies, the very reason they are called emerging economies is they are clearly building to a point that developed economies are at in terms of infrastructure, in terms of wealth being enjoyed by the population. Do these countries have the ability now and companies in them have the ability to cope with these type of challenges? Do they have the bandwidth? So yeah, you are you are right. I mean, to a large extent, uh, not all emerging market countries and companies operating in these markets have all the necessary uh, tools or techniques or strategies uh, in place to mitigate uh, the climate change and the global warming issue that we are facing today. Uh, especially, you know, if you look at some of the poorer countries uh, with very low per capita incomes, very low level of resources, uh, they are the ones who are going to suffer disproportionately. And Gary mentioned uh, Bangladesh, for instance. Uh, so s- similarly, there are several other uh, poor countries in the world, the low income countries, where you will find uh, the challenge will be uh, quite significant. I mean, uh, at some point, you know, I mean, people even also talk about India, which um, is going to face a lot of issue because of its large population, which is primarily rural, uh, mainly dependent on agriculture, which is dependent on monsoons. Uh, In addition, it has a very large coastline, so rising sea levels is also a threat. And the rapid growth that the country has seen for the last so many years uh, has not necessarily been uh, green in that sense. Uh, so yes, I mean, emerging markets have a lot of uh, work to do to s- try and reverse to some extent. I think reversal is possible because some of these countries are not yet industrialized, not yet modern, not yet urban. So they can uh, try and reverse the, the pollution that they are contributing today. Uh, But as Gary mentioned earlier, there is so much CO2 already in the atmosphere, which was contributed by somebody else, uh, uh, which uh, emerging markets are also uh, kind of bearing the the impact of. Uh, So so I think it requires a a much more of a, a global effort as such. You know, and that's why we had the Paris Climate Agreement, wherein a number of countries signed up to And I think there was one very important aspect of the agreement, which was realizing that a lot of the problems of climate change that we see today were not caused by countries who are suffering the most or will suffer the most, was caused by uh, another group of countries. And hence, there should be some transfer of technology, transfer of know-how between the Western world, the developed world, to the emerging world, so that the emerging world can uh, try and mitigate and as Gary mentions also adapt to some of the some of the challenges. Exactly and now going back to engagement how can we then um, get this message through to companies is it through engagement and how does that work in emerging markets is it just the same playbook that we would use anywhere or is it more nuanced? Um, So I think Public policy engagement has to be a topmost priority. I mean, we can and we are engaging with our companies to understand how aware they are and what they are doing with uh, with this issue. But I think uh, first and foremost, we should focus a lot of attention on public policy. Let me give you an example why. 
So, you know, we were engaging with a company in uh, Taiwan, a small company, a uh, billion dollars of turnover, uh, and asking them and questioning them why uh, renewable energy is not a large part of their mix. And the company said, look, we are not TSMC. You know, we can't afford to directly contract with a renewable energy provider. We just take the energy that the grid provides us. So then the question is, are we blaming the right people here uh, that look your energy mix is not right you're emitting too much carbon from your uh, processes so then and that's why i say we have to go back to the regulators the public policy uh, becomes very important because they can determine how the country's energy mix is going to look like from a 5 10 15 20 year perspective i mean just giving you an example i mean i keep coming back to india because I read a number of studies which uh, highlight India as the most vulnerable country. But at the same time, you know, one has to see the amount of progress that the country is making in terms of improving its energy mix. So, for instance, in 2010, the country had one gigawatt of solar. Today, they have 34 gigawatts of solar. You know, So, in less than 10 years, they've added a, a lot of solar power. And by 2022, the overall uh, energy mix, energy coming from renewable is likely to exceed uh, 100 to 150 gigawatts. Uh, uh, so I think that's a journey that we would like to see several other emerging market countries go through. And for that, uh, in, in addition to engaging with companies, it is also very important to engage with regulators and with the government to make sure that the energy mix shifts uh, decisively towards renewables, because that is one way in which the uh, emissions could be lowered and could be reversed, if possible. And that will make adaptation easier for companies. Exactly. And I don't think it's also that they have to adapt in the same way, necessarily, as developed um, companies in, in developed countries because they don't necessarily have to take the same path. There can be a leapfrogging effect. And we've also seen that in technology. We've seen how, say, in Africa, mobile payments have completely leapfrogged the, the, the brick-and-mortar bank, for example. Do you have examples of the leapfrogging effect um, in India in particular or any of the countries that you cover? So I'm very glad you asked this question about leapfrogging. So let me, uh, you know... Uh highlight one very interesting study done by IFC, which is part of the World Bank. The study is a little bit old, like a two or three years old, but it is still relevant today. And they talk about the opportunity from climate change and global warming. So a lot of studies that we see talk about the risks, but not many talk about opportunities. And this is one study that really caught my eye. Uh, so from, from an emerging market standpoint, what IFC estimates is that uh, a total of $23 trillion worth of investments opportunity will be created. Uh, they call it a smart climate uh, in, uh, opportunity. And a large portion of this $23 trillion comes from green buildings, which is infrastructure mainly, green infrastructure. And that is where I think leapfrogging becomes very important because, as we all know, majority of the emerging markets, with the exception of China, haven't really invested too much in infrastructure. Urbanization levels are quite low. 
uh, as I mentioned, India, 60% of people still live in rural areas, in villages. Uh, so I think the leapfrogging that we've seen uh, in other sectors from landlines to mobile phones, from PCs to mobile, those kind of things, uh, from, from 2G to 4G and now to 5G. So all of this can be implemented in infrastructure as well. Uh, so these countries have the potential uh, to make sure that whatever new infrastructure they are creating, new buildings that are being built are energy efficient, are green, um, use lower level of resource and also while constructing those uh, buildings and infrastructure, uh, it, it uses as sustainable as possible resources uh, like aluminium or, or glass, etc. as opposed to uh, steel. So, so I think uh, there is a lot of potential that emerging markets have, and that's why you know it's very important for us as investors to engage at the public policy level, to create awareness at the topmost level, uh, and I think that's how a lot of positive change can be uh, brought about in in emerging markets, and this leapfrogging that we just highlighted uh, can occur. Exactly. And I'd just like to bring Louise in here. Clearly, it's not just in emerging markets that leapfrogging can occur. What it involves is simply innovation, bold thinking, and maybe just a reassessment of business models and the way things are typically done. COVID-19 certainly has accelerated many things and many changes, particularly how we work remotely. And uh, Louise, in your uh, work, do you see um, that we are making progress? Do you see um, what is the path of the future now currently as we look to engage with companies and push them maybe to leapfrog through established technologies into bold visionary ones? Yes, we're definitely seeing that. And as Kunjal mentioned, in terms of infrastructure and green buildings, that's something that in the last year, um, even within the developed markets um, opportunity set, there's lots of companies that are increasingly putting CapEx behind um, some of those opportunities and we're seeing that coming through in the data. I think in terms of, you know, COVID, obviously it has changed some businesses, uh, particularly, you know, right now in terms of their shorter term priorities. But I think a lot of businesses are also taking the opportunity to set their longer term strategy and particularly where climate for a lot of companies, they feel it is part of the future, but still fairly long term, but they're setting shorter term targets um, in order to achieve those longer term um, targets as well. And, you know, the change that we've seen in terms of within companies is that it's gone from a few companies talking about it to now it is mainstream and, and it is a, a must have rather than a, a kind of would like to have when it comes to talking about um, how they're managing some of the energy efficiency or some of the greener opportunities. That does lead to a challenge for us in terms of seeing where companies are making net positives. And the idea of greenwashing is something that uh, we have to try and assess within companies uh, and certainly within uh, our conversations with companies, we can try to probe and ask the right questions such that we can try and look through um, any companies that are greenwashing. But certainly that that is one of the challenges 
um, that we see within developed markets as it becomes more and more popular um, to talk about some of these um, climate or green themes. Thanks, Louise. And Gary, just returning to you, you did write a fairly devastating account of the threats that face um, us on our planet in, in your piece, The Gemologist. What do you think we need to do from here? Will we need to have a piece like this issued on a regular basis, kind of just ramming on the door of companies to remind them? Or do you think we need to do something even um, more penetrating, perhaps, um, in terms of uh, raising awareness? I think companies, um, I, th I think uh, it would be best if investors got the message that, that uh, warming is here to stay. And uh, having gotten that message, start dialogues with their investee companies about how to uh, how to deal with it. I the one thing that came out of uh, our research, which was encouraging, was that the one group of companies that were quite aware of the issue were insurance companies. And I've heard that, um, in particular, uh, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, which are backed by mortgages, uh, coastal properties in Florida, are uh, are no longer being bought by some very large asset management firms in the states because it's just too risky. So what we're going to see is insurance companies having the dialogue with the risk managers at companies around the world because all companies of any size, of a decent size anyway, need need to use insurance. And so this is something which is going to come into their awareness one way or the other. But as investors, we shouldn't be behind the curve. We should be actively uh, talking with them and uh, looking at how they're preparing. I have to say also that it isn't as if cities are not aware of it. We've seen examples of uh, many, many cities, uh, both in developed and uh, developing countries that are taking uh, measures to to work on this, you know, to the point of Jakarta, Indonesia is moving its capital from Jakarta, which has got very serious issues to uh, to, to Borneo, and so um, it's it's an awareness which is gradually dawning. The insurance aspects will come first, and um, we as investors just have to be aware of it, included in our analysis, and be vocal with our investee companies. And as Kujo mentioned, I think this is critical also at the at the level of governments to make sure that they're they're paying attention and doing what they can. It's very interesting. Um, it seems the takeaway from that is that while awareness may be built, it doesn't become actionable until it starts to affect the bottom line. And it certainly is affecting the bottom line already for insurance companies, but arguably for every company, it will affect the bottom line at some stage and probably not too distant future. On that note, it's time to sound the closing bell. But for, before we do so, I'd like to thank Louise Dudley, Portfolio Manager for our Global Equities Capabilities, Gary Greenberg, Head of Emerging Markets, and Kunjal Gala, Co-Portfolio Manager with the Global Emerging Markets team, for joining me today. That leaves me to present to you my key takeaways from today's conversation. So what do we learn? First, thanks to Louise's piece, I think we learned that ESG analysis can now be done in so much more depth, with more transparency, it's more measurable, and that industry benchmarks and tools are improving all of the time. Thanks to Gary's piece, we learned that adaptation and not just mitigation is an essential starting point for every company, whether in developed or emerging markets. 
Just as we have all, grudgingly in some cases, adapted to slow the spread of COVID-19, so must we adapt to slow the spread of climate change. And lastly, we learned that investors are already taking action, advocating, but that so much more can still be done in terms of writing statements to governments and making a, a concerted commitment to green investing. We see companies taking science-based climate action and adopting science-based climate targets. And finally, in a slight twist to how I usually finish this podcast with a recommendation of my own, I'm going to turn to Gary Greenberg to give a recommendation because I consider Gary a little bit of a guru in the area of meditation in that I know this is something he has done for some time. After the 100th day of the coronavirus pandemic, which passed last week, I think that meditation is probably something that we would all benefit from. But I don't know if that's what Gary is going to recommend. So Gary, can you talk to us about one of your favorite podcasts that you turn to in times like this? Uh, thanks, Ethan. Well, I uh, there are a number of resources on, on the web that are very useful. There's one called Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A, New Word Seed, which, uh, which is very good, which contains a whole lot of uh, great uh, meditation teachers and guided meditations. Another one in the tradition that I follow as a Buddhist tradition is called uh, Plum Village. It's Plum Village UK or plumvillage.org. And um, they have a number of different uh, mindfulness practices which are helpful. I do uh, meditate every day and I do find that it, it really does cool the flames and uh, keep me in a good place which enables me to be focused and yet relaxed. So uh, those are two uh, two good resources, Dharma Sita and Home uh, Village, that I think are pretty useful. Thank you so much, Gary, for those recommendations. I'll be back next month with another episode of Fundamentals. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast and don't want to miss upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the Federated Hermes podcast channels Amplified and Here and Now. You'll find these channels on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Until then, I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at The Firm. Thank you for listening to Fundamentals. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.